Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Frank Kilgore. He's an attorney in St. Paul, and we'll get back to him in just a minute. But first, I've got to tell you a story. Once upon a time, in 2016, a man named J.D. Vance wrote a book. The book is called Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. That book became a movie directed by Ron Howard. It became a New York Times bestseller. And J.D. Vance, the author, is now a candidate for Senate in Ohio in the upcoming election. So the interesting part of this story that pertains to our interview today is that when my guest, Frank Kilgore, read this book, something happened. And he wrote a book that is called J.D. Vance is a Fake Hillbilly, Think Twice Before Calling All Coalfield Appalachians Racist, Sexist, and Ignoramuses. Frank Kilgore, my guest, what happened when you read Hillbilly Elegy? Well, I read it uh, as far as I could go without uh, getting even more upset, but I didn't uh, come around to really writing this book until the movie came out. And of all people on earth to run that trashy movie was Opie. Oh, Mayberry. yeah. And I thought he I thought he liked the mountains and mountain people because, you know, every week there he was in the mountains of North Carolina. But apparently he begrudged uh, his upbringing on TV because the, the movie although I didn't think it's possible, it was worse than the book when it came to stereotyping Appalachia, particularly Cofield Appalachia. And so that's that's what uh, got me motivated. Well, you were motivated, all right. I felt like I needed heat-proof gloves to read your book. It was, it was, your chapter one was just a rant. You could just see the steam rising from your head and your imagination when you were reading this book. But let's get a little bit more specific about what exactly J.D. Vance said in Hillbilly Elegy that you say worsened the stereotyping of Appalachians. Well, first of all, he was raised in western Ohio, which is flat, and but his mother's from eastern Kentucky, and she had a drug problem, and when she would be jailed or he, he would be taken away from her, uh, her mother lived in eastern Kentucky in the Cofields, and so her mother would come up and get J.D. or vice versa, and she gave him, uh, it was a really bad, dysfunctional family. I mean, the worst that you can come up with, uh, drugs and violence and attitudes and wouldn't work, couldn't work. And so what he did, he took that, that small slice of his experience in Cofield, Appalachia, and applied it to the rest of the region. Uh, and I've had some people say, well, how do you know it was the uh, Appalachian region? Well, we in Ozarks kind of own that uh, that name, and it, it couldn't be the Rocky Mountains, it couldn't be the Flatlands, so I put two and two together and figured out he was talking about Appalachia. And he mentions Appalachia several times. So what he really did, in essence, was um, get the far right to, to believe all of the 200 years of, of bigotry against their culture. And then the far left, also, it um, 
reassured them that they were right about the bigotry. So both both uh, fringes uh, had a heyday with that. And, of course, one of the things that happened, I delayed getting the book out, and I'm glad I did because by that time, Bette Midler uh, made that real fallacious um, comment about West Virginia when Senator Manchin didn't vote her way. Uh, and she talked about he wanted everybody in the nation be like West Virginia that is ignorant and strung out and stupid. And so I reacted to that, too. So I don't know who I was more mad at, uh, the right-wing guy or the left-wing lady. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> they you, both heard Appalachia. You took aim at a lot of people. And, okay, here, I'm going to jump into this question right there because it's the perfect opening, Frank Kilgore. You were upset about the generalizations of the book, that people right. were people who had drug, drug problems, alcohol problems, family dysfunction, were portrayed as being a community and that it was a culture that was perpetuated by the people involved. Is that correct? Yes, and that it applied to everyone. I mean, that was the inference. Um, and uh, I know we have, just like any place of poverty, we have uh, issues with all of those things. You, that's what happens worldwide. But there's a whole lot more to our history, our culture, and our present um just the huge majority work or they've worked and retired and they put their kids in school and they obey the law. And he took the most, um, uh, I guess, downgraded element of our society and tried to make it into his story and Appalachia's story. And that's what I didn't like about it. It's, it's one thing if you were born and raised in Appalachia and, you say, well, this is bad or that's bad, but he he was just a visitor, and I I don't think he had any idea of our history or culture. We were the second largest melting pot in the history of the United States, only second to New York City, when the coal companies had to have hand labor, and they uh, recruited um, about 20 nationalities and sharecroppers into the coal fields. And people lived side by side, and the miners worked side by side, and they had to watch out for each other, and they become friends. So I lay out all kinds of first in the coal fields that was based upon that inclusiveness and egalitarian society that that developed because of all those immigrants and friendships. Now, did they have some problems? Sure, everybody does, but the culture changed. Appalachia because of those immigrants, and I'm, I'm pulling out a lot of proof for that. Being an attorney, I'm, I like to have proof, and I know you'll want to get into that later, but that's why I wrote the book, because yeah. I'm tired of us not fighting back. Well, um, I'm going to delay my question about Bette Midler, but first I wanted to tell you that I read the book, and when I put the book down, I was just dumbfounded, because I'm from Appalachia, and I was seeing the generalizations that he was making and thinking, where does that come from? That's not my experience. I've seen those things that he describes, but that's not who we are. 
I, I, I felt the point more than I understood it intellectually at, at, at the time of reading the book. But here's my question. In your book, you say J.D. Vance is a fake hillbilly. What is a hillbilly? Are you one? Would I be one? I think among ourselves, we can call each other uh, uh, colorful names. Uh, it's a little bit different when somebody else uh, uses that name because it's almost always derogatory. I've, I've used that name um, joking with friends of mine or family, and you just tease each other. But when people say it, that are not from this culture, and there's many cultures like that. You can say certain things in other cultures that outsiders should not say. Well, you're talking <laughs> about the so, N-word. You've just described the argument about why black people can say the N-word and white people can't. Sure. I think we own those words, and we better keep it to ourselves and amongst ourselves because we don't need to be trying to uh, co-op someone else's words of endearment that turns into words of insult when other people use them. I think everybody knows that. So you have this rant about him and <laughs> to him in in the first chapter of your book in particular. I'm wondering, have you had any kind of feedback from him? Do you know that whether he's read the book, what he thinks of the book? Have you reached out well, to him? I, I sent several copies to his, um, I guess, political um, outpost in Ohio, and I haven't heard anything back. I'm, apparently, they are too busy to read, or they read it and thought this uh, doesn't matter. Uh, it was number one in new releases in its category and on Amazon for quite some time. So somebody was buying it, but those were sent out as a professional courtesy to his uh, campaign offices, and and I invited him to have a uh, debate with me on any TV program that would have us in the book. So I haven't gotten that invitation yet. It took forever for him to agree to debate his opponent. <laughs> so that is going to uh, let me have at him. Well, yeah, you want to have at him. Boy, that is clear. And I'm glad that the book is doing so well. So what I wanted to ask you about, about the Bette Midler question, you were very upset with J.D. Vance because of his stereotyping, that he lumps everybody together in Appalachia and kind of identifies them with the bad parts of any culture, drugs, yeah. alcohol, and family dysfunction. But, Frank Kilgore, I think you might be guilty of the same thing. Your, okay. uh, your sarcasm about Bette Midler, she needs to disgorge her money. She's an ultra-woke liberal. Mm -hmm. How's that for stereotyping, and what is an ultra-woke liberal, and why is it bad? Well, I guess if you're going to be woke, you embrace the fact that there shouldn't be racism or bigotry against anyone. You should not stereotype any culture, any society, any race. And she did that when she said that about West Virginia. When she said that about West Virginia, her true uh, identity came out. If that's not bigotry, I have never heard of bigotry. To slam an entire state because their senator didn't vote the way that she wanted him to. Now, he ultimately voted for the best parts of that, build back better. Um, but, no, she's a bigot and a hypocrite the minute she let that come out of her mouth or her email. So now, bigot's a bigot. <laughs> All right. So you called her out. And then there was a, 
a lot of attention in the book to the Hillary comment. Describe yeah. Hillary's comment and how that played into the description you were giving. Well, I believe that she would have been the first woman president elected in the United States had she not looked directly in the camera and talk about the deplorables, what she was talking about with rural people, mostly poor people, that some a lot of them supported Trump. And she, she again, just like Beth, lumped us together, and she lost what support she had in Appalachia because on top of that, she looked in the camera and said, we're, get, we're going to get rid of coal mining jobs because of the environment. Well, I understand that we need to keep switching to um, renewables. I know that. There's certain coal that's mined to make steel. I don't know that people around the world or the United States or in the cities or Bette Miller, where she's at, would like to do without steel in the future. So it's more complex than just what they said. And so I say in my book, if um, Hillary had looked into the camera and told journalists and and reporters, hey, uh, Internet's taking your job uh, worth, uh, worthiness away. We don't need you anymore. Thank you very much for your service the last 400 years. Uh, I'm going to get rid of your jobs. Well, they wouldn't vote for her either, you know. So, but she picked out coal miners, and she picked out, Poor people, and she lost. Well, I, I, I looked up the quote, and I wanted to really break it down with you because what happened after her comment about the deplorables was that her, the right-wing Republicans, were portraying her as having said something that showed contempt for everyday Americans. What she said was, that half of Trump supporters, half of Trump supporters, belong in a basket of deplorables, racist, sexist, homophobic, and Islamophobic views, but that the other half, the federal government has let them down and are desperate for change. How, how unfair is that? Well, you got to add it to what she said later about coal mining. And she's talking about Appalachia when she's talking about coal mining. I mean, since the 1880s, Coal mining has been a major industry in Cofield, Appalachia. And so when she's talking about the deplorables and she says, okay, and also uh, Trump supporters, well, a lot of Trump supporters are Appalachians. So the ones that maybe were on the fence, maybe those who were thinking about voting for, switched when she made that very bigoted statement about those uh, supporters, but do you do that? Do you call them deplorables as if they were not American? They were subhuman. I don't think so. I think that hurt her uh, real bad in some of the swing states. Yeah, there's no question that that hurt her. I think that there were some comments were that were conflated because in that one comment where she talked about deplorables, she was clearly differentiating between. Racist, sexist, homophobic, and she, there was no geography involved in that. She just said half of Trump supporters and that mm-hmm. the other half of Trump supporters feel that the government has let them down, which is what I think most people would agree with, that the government has let down a lot of people in the middle class and working poor. I know a lot of people don't believe this, but Appalachians read and write and are pretty perceptive. If you say that and then you say, got to get rid of the coal uh, industry, 
what are you going to how are you going to put those two together and not say that she's talking about you well, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to leave it at that, and people will have their own analysis. But I, I wanted to pick at you a little bit. I was just so looking sure. forward to this and finding out about your thoughts about your book and how you did it. And, you know, the, that the stereotyping was a topic that offended you, but yet you didn't seem to have a problem stereotyping people like Bette Midler. Let me interrupt for a moment and remind listeners that I'm talking to Frank Kilgore. He's an attorney in St. Paul. He's the son and grandson of coal miners. And he wrote a book just recently called J.D. Vance is a Fake Hillbilly. So we're talking about stereotyping and how upset Frank Kilgore was at the stereotyping of Appalachia and the concept that everybody is is a hillbilly and that the connotation of that was everybody seemed to be involved in drugs, alcohol, and family dysfunction, and that was the community and the perpetual culture in Appalachia according to J.D. Vance's book. So Frank Kilgore wrote a book and said J.D. Vance is a fake hillbilly, and that's what we were talking about. Anything else that you would like to add, Frank, what I want to do is move on to the things that you're proud of about, about Appalachia and your environment in which you live. But one of the things that you said in your book that I think you might like to say more about is that you feel like that the coal fields are presented as a third world country or seen as a third world country by lots of people. Yes, I do. The third world countries in South America, uh, investors from the United States, mostly from northern areas, went down there and bought up the minerals, bought up the resources, and the people who were harvesting that or mining those resources got wages, but they got no wealth. The wealth went back up to the shareholders and the companies. And that's why you never could see those those countries in South America ever get up on their feet and be able to take care of themselves because when you work for wages, when the job's over, you're over. Your, your future's over because you're so concentrated on extraction of minerals and, and natural resources that there's nothing else that's been developed to help you go segue into something else when the when the material is gone. And that's exactly what happened in Cofield, Appalachia. First it was a t- timber, and when it was cut, it was gone. And then when the coal was mined, it was gone. It doesn't grow back. It took 200 million years to develop itself. And so that is why I think we can be comparable because what happens when the extraction's over and the people who made the money don't live there to recycle it into a society, then you have nothing except poverty. Well, how would you describe Appalachia today in that context? Well, the reason I was so upset with that book and that movie that J.D. put together is for Ever since the 1970s, the co-fields have uh, leaders have understood that they've got to segue into other uh, facets of jobs and training. And but you can't attract investors or even local people to invest if the stereotype is exactly what JD said it was. So you it started in the 1970s. The Appalachian Regional Commission, which is which is put together 
in the 1960s, started improving our infrastructure, highways, water, uh, access, sewage, and now high-speed Internet, uh, all kinds of infrastructure so we could draw uh, businesses to Appalachia. Well, who's going to come there if you think and believe the crap that was in that book, best-selling book, by a guy that never lived in Appalachia. He stayed there temporarily whenever his mother was in jail. That's that's a fake. So if it had been written by somebody who grew up in the coal fields, dad, granddad, sister was coal miners, and they've been there generationally, and they said these things, then, you know, maybe we have to take another look at ourselves, but it's not true. It's when you swipe that wide and that deep at a society, because we're really the last uh, group in the, in America that people can slander and be bigoted about, and not when we don't fight back. Well, you fight and, back, and I heard well, you on an interview <laughs> on this radio station once before. It was with Dirk Moore on his program, and you were talking about schools and education, and it impressed the heck out of me when you started rattling off the records of success in the educational systems in this part of the country. Would you like to review some of that? Sure. Um, that's where the ignoramus part comes in the title. You know, Everybody, because of people like J.D. and Bette Midler, I'll argue with that for how long you want to. She's a bigot, or she wouldn't have <laughs> said that about the entire state that included children, okay? <laughs> yes, I was mad, and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> really? <laughs> but I, as, far as, as far as I know, I've never put down any group like that, any group from any place. And if you do it, after you preach against it, you're a hypocrite. I know every human being is a hypocrite to some ex- extent, but hers was a Olympic-style gold medal <laughs> hypocrisy, okay? But getting back to what you said, uh, I kept hearing that uh, our Cofield region of Virginia and other Cofield regions in Appalachia, certainly not all of them, that we were doing real well on our SOL scores. That's a the standards of learning um, and reading, uh, math, and science. And I didn't think much about it until I thought, well, wait a minute, maybe I should look all that up. For years, Cofield Appalachian schools, with two exceptions <clears throat> in Virginia, were second in SOLs in the entire state. Then a, a few years ago, right before COVID, we were number one in the state. We beat Northern Virginia. Advertise that. So here, look. Look what our kids can do. Look how smart they are. Come here and train them. A lot of them feel like, feel like they have to leave to get a good job. So when you when a lot of your smartest people leave because they think they have to or literally have to to get the kind of job they need or want, then we lose that biggest asset of all. You talked about the diversity uh, from a long way back in Appalachia. 200 years ago, we were, the, the media and the, the public aspect of us from outside the area, well, we were just a bunch of uh, uh, moon, moonshine 
drinkers and everybody laid around with a, a, a bottle of moonshine and didn't do anything. That they were lazy, shiftless, stupid, and somewhat subhuman when you read some of the worst of it. So, yeah, it's been going on. And I point out that um, in the Revolutionary War, our ancestors from southwest Virginia and western North Carolina changed the, the war from being lost to being won in two battles. And even the History Channel wouldn't give us credit for the one that really tipped the, the scale to uh, the revolution and to freedom from England. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the Battle of Kings Mountain because I had ancestors there, too. And you mentioned my dad in your book, the Keller Keller Interpretive Center in Abingdon about the Battle of Kings Mountain. Okay, that's great to know because we need to learn all that. But it was a turning point of war. Uh, We killed, uh, we had a a thousand over-mountain men go fight at Kings Mountain against Tories who were led by a redcoat major and we killed them eight to one we didn't line up and you know face them and shoot each other in the face we used the same kind of tactics we did in fighting native americans and also uh, hunting game and we wiped them out and then a few months later we had the battle of cow pens and we beat general cornwallis and to the point he had to leave the south if he had taken over the South completely, up north, George Washington was killing his men for deserting because they were unpaid, underfed, and freezing. And so he would line them up and have their own buddies kill them. So that's what was going on up north. Down south, we were whipping everyone that came to us, or we went to them. And three presidents and the commander of the overall English war effort in America said that, that that the Battle of Kings Mountain was a turning point of the war. And it was Colonel, it was, wasn't it Ferguson who was the guy who said, I'm going to come and lay waste yes. to your land? And you don't say something like that to the mountaineers in this part of the country in the wartime. That's when they gathered and said, we'll show him and went over and killed him plumb dead, right? That is what he threatened. Best marksman in the world went down there and killed him and everybody with him that didn't surrender. They were mad. And my guest today, Frank Kilgore, is exhibit A of that. Don't say, whether you're J.D. <laughs> Vance, who's running for senator, whoever the heck you are, don't you say, we're hillbillies here. No, this is, let me, let me rephrase that. Don't you say that we in Appalachia are racist, sexist, and ignoramuses, you better think twice before doing that. And that was the threat from my guest today, Frank Kilgore. Well, and I also said, don't call all of us that, because we have, we have, (laughs) I can find them. All right, well, we're out of time. We're going to have to, either we're going to have to schedule a second interview to talk more or we've got to stop for today my guest today i'm glad to to know that that was your dad's project over there oh it was he worked so hard on that for decades and got cleared the right of way uh, for the over mountain 
Victory Trail march that they reenact every year. I guess today, Frank Kilgore, don't mess with him about stereotypes in Appalachia. His book is J.D. Vance is a Fake Hillbilly. I advise you to read it. Thank you, Frank Kilgore, for being my guest today. Thank you. And thanks above all to the listeners at WEHC 90.7. If you want to hear part of this that you may have missed or listen to it again or hear other shows, go to WEHCFM.com, click on the archive page, and you can find this program and many more at our podcast site. And in the meantime, please stay tuned to 90.7.